Hello church, if you would open to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Start in verse 1. Read through verse 11. Very sobering. Sobering account of Jesus' last hours. says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing Him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in Him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said to them, Take Him yourselves and crucify Him. For I find no guilt in Him. The Jews answered Him, We have a law, and according to the law He ought to die because He has made Himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered His headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to Him, You will not speak to Me, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Father, as we put our minds on unpleasant things, to put it lightly. Repulsive things. Disturbing things. Lord, let us not be disturbing by being apathetic. Lord, we pray for our own hearts as we read what happened to You in these last hours that we be not unmoved. Lord, that these things would penetrate to our souls. And that we would not just think about the mistreatment that You received, but why You received it. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would minister to us. We need Your ministry. Would You help us through this text? Would You change us through this text? And would You cause us to worship Your Son in and through this text? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two human experiences that we all cannot avoid. We want to avoid them. We try to avoid them. We cannot avoid them. I'm referring to sin and suffering. And um, I know a lot about both of these human experiences myself. Uh, I know about them because I live with others who sin and suffer. I, I know it because I've spent a lot of time in the counseling room, uh, which only exists because of sin and suffering. 
And if I've learned anything about sin and suffering, I've learned that they're very connected. Uh, sometimes more loosely, sometimes more tightly. And we see that connection here in chapter 19. Christ is suffering, and He's, he's suffering as a result of others' sin against Him. And in this passage, I think what we're seeing um, is the, the very worst of humanity and the very best of humanity. We, we see the worst of humanity in, in, in Pilate and these Roman soldiers and the Jews themselves. And then we see the best of humanity in Christ, the God-man. And I say uh, humanity because this, this passage, again, it gives us these two extremes of, of humanity, the worst and the best. And, and uh, this is really gets into the, the field of study that's, that's often called anthropology. Uh, so let me remind us of these ologies. Uh, we have a lot of them in Christianity. Uh, we have theology, the study of God. We have soteriology, the study of salvation. We have eschatology, the study of the end times and the last things. We have ecclesiology, the study of the church. We have pneumatology, the study of the spirit. And we have soteriology, or anthropology rather, uh, the study of humanity. Now, I, I think that... Um, the study of anthropology out of all of those, maybe in our circles even, that would be the least studied. Um, and because, uh, because of that, the church is weak. When it comes to gender, when it comes to issues of sexuality, we know many churches are caving to uh, non-biblical ideas that are surrounding us and our culture uh, on issues of gender and sexuality. Why? Uh, is that because they don't have a good ecclesiology or theology or soteriology or all of these other things? No, it's because they don't have a good anthropology. Um, we need to have a biblical, sturdy anthropology if we're going to endure uh, all that's coming uh, toward us as Christ's church. So I'm advocating this. I'm advocating that every one of us as, as Christians be able to open our Bible and say, and preferably go to Genesis 1 and 2 and be able to say, this is a man. This is a woman. This is who we are as image bearers of God. This is uh, the purpose of a man and a woman. This is the unique and distinct roles and responsibilities of man and woman. We should all be able to, to do that um, if we're going to guard ourselves from many uh, wrong ideologies and wrong ideas that are creeping into uh, the church, but we can't start with uh, what anthropology says about gender or sexuality. You can't start there. You have to get to more basic issues. The issues like what we see in this text. The very worst of humanity, the very best of humanity. There's fundamental and foundational doctrines of humanity that we need to see, and we'll see them in this passage. Um, so I want to break this in two categories. Uh, or two points, starting with the worst of humanity. This really is the bottom of the barrel. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head, and arrayed Him in a purple robe, and they came 
up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. They punched Christ in the face. Uh, We studied this last week. I won't say too much, but I do want to reemphasize um, there, are, there is something of a trend, and this kind of circles in church history. If you, for those who've studied this, you, you see that there have been times that we think in order to exalt Christ's suffering under the wrath of God on the cross for sin, we must downplay uh, all of the other suffering that Christ endured. And, and we need not do that, I said last week. Um, We don't need to, in order to exalt Christ's suffering on the cross, downplay all the other physical, psychological, emotional uh, suffering that Christ endured. It's not necessary. Uh, Isaiah 50, verse 6, 700 years before Christ came, says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We need not downplay that. You, I mean, we can get on what medical websites, right? You can get on a medical website and you can look up hemidrosis. Hemidrosis, that's a, a condition of sweating blood that someone, it's a rare condition, medical uh, condition. It comes uh, from extreme distress, paralyzing fear. Happens to very few individuals. It happened to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. We, we, we need not ignore that. That shows the depth of which he was suffering psychologically, uh, emotionally, as he was contemplating uh, the wrath of God that was to come. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about soldiers who would sweat blood before they went into battle. Um, I just picture, you know, what what is a, a most terrifying prospect for us? Maybe uh, uh, something extreme. You're you're tied to a railroad tracks and and you cannot move, and you hear the the coming approaching train. Uh, the the paralyzing fear you would have, right? This Christ. Th- these are little illustrations to illustrate that anticipation soon coming that he would experience on the cross. We can't fathom that. We don't have we don't have categories psychologically, emotionally for what that type of distress looks like, but it brought blood out of his sweat. So what here's what I'm getting at. There there's layers to the suffering that Christ is enduring. Um, it's one thing to receive a Roman flogging where they literally created a device that would rip out the most amount of flesh from the back or to, or to have four five-inch uh, thorns pressed into your skull. It's another thing to contemplate the soon-coming wrath that He was going to endure. And then to do all of that as you're being tortured and laughed at and mocked. And so look at verse 2. It says, The soldiers twisted together a a crown of thorns. They put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. And they came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck Him with their hands. What are they doing? They're they're scoffing. 
They're scoffing. Scoffers scoff. The best description we have of a scoffer, I think, is Psalms 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And I don't think these are three categories, wicked, sinners, scoffer, that are three ways to say the same thing. Uh, Most commentators on Psalms 1 will tell you there's progression here. There's a a deeper falling into sin. These are three gradations of sin moving deeper and deeper into sin. So it says, those who walk in the counsel of the wicked, that is, they're listening to ungodly voices. Corrupt language, ungodly ideologies, maybe in music, maybe in entertainment, uh, to the point where they eventually begin to stand in the way of sinners. That is, their conscience gets hard. It doesn't seem that bad anymore. They think they calm their conscience by saying, well, others are doing much worse. Which slowly and gradually, usually without knowing, leads to a sitting in the seat of scoffers, which is this third and final category. And look at, guys, the danger of this for the person who is in this downward trajectory. You know, think of the danger of the person who says, I just like the plot to the story. I just like the, the beat of the music. I, I'm not, the, 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 the sexual language, the explicit profanity, that doesn't affect me. Eventually begins to get desensitized to it so that they slowly begin to share those ungodly worldviews, agree with those views of morality, sympathize with those worldly concerns and agendas to the point where they begin to openly mock Christian morality or those conservatives who might try to hold to it. Which is, at the heart level, really just hatred toward God and His moral standard. Uh, In other words, our culture is full of scoffers. And when we talk about having a biblical worldview, which we want ourselves, we want to pass that on to our children to view all things in relation to the Word of God, we need to recognize the amount of scoffing that is happening in our day. You know, the recent anger against Roe versus Wade decision and against those pro-life advocates seeking to protect innocent lives in the womb of the unborn, It's really at the heart a hating of the Imago Dei. It's not just political or ideological disagreements. It's not what's happening. The person has heard the counsel of the wicked. They've agreed with the counsel of the wicked so that they now stand in the way of sinners so comfortably that they begin to vocalize a hatred toward God which looks like a hatred toward His Standard of morality. That's what scoffing is. That's what the Bible calls scoffing. So, here's what we, we cannot miss. This is the fundamental thing about scoffing. It's aimed that direction. It's always aimed up. It's always Godward. And when we're talking about sin, we, we need to remember that all sin is ultimately sin against God. 
When we're, when we're talking categories of sin, we, we know sin is not just violating another person or sinning against another person horizontally. All sin is this direction, ultimately. The classic example, David and Bathsheba. David takes Bathsheba, which is essentially a rape-type situation, has her husband murdered. And in his confession, after horribly sinning against Bathsheba and her husband, what is David say, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. How can, I mean, most, even a lot of Christians read that and go, I have no idea how David can say against you and you only have I sinned. Because we don't understand how radically vertical all sin is. We don't see that. Uh, John Piper, I think, gives us a very helpful reminder and definition of what sin is with this radically vertical dimension to it when he asks this simple question, what is sin? And he says, it is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. All of it Godward. And so what makes scoffing so evil? Scoffers aren't scoffing at the referee at the football game. They're scoffing at God. And what God has said. That's what scoffing is. So here, here, here would be another example. Uh, profanity. All right, we're in church. I think we all would admit profanity is bad. Okay? Some worse than others. Some profanity words or phrases would be worse than others. What do do I mean by that? Well, um, a four-letter word is bad. But when you modify the four-letter word with the name of God, that's way worse. That's a violation of the third commandment. That God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless those who take His name in vain. And, and many people uh, who, who break this commandment will say, well, I don't mean anything by it. But that's the problem. You don't mean anything by the name above all names. You're not only treating it as common, but less than common. A throwaway phrase. You're saying that the God who has infinite value and worth, His name is worth throwing away. That the name of God who made you and gave you life, damn that name, curse that name. That is not something you come out of the womb naturally doing. Here's what I'm trying to get at. You're discipled into that. There's a there's a a, a, a fall, a, a slippery slope of sin, as Jonathan Edwards uh, called it, 
a slippery, all sin is, has a downward slope and you, you move in gradations downward into these deeper types of sin. He said, sin is a slippery slope. This is Edwards. And men play on the edges of steep cliffs and expect not to fall. And so what is he saying? He's saying sin is not stagnant. It's always moving downward. And, and so let me make this more explicit. So we're all abundantly clear on what, what I'm trying to say here. Look at verse 11 at the very end. And listen to what Jesus says. This is Jesus' words to Pilate. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Greater sin. Jesus has categories of sin. Some sin being greater than other sin. And I, and I want to just meditate on that for a moment because I think there's multiple things that are helpful to us in having a shared view as, of, as Jesus on the degrees of sin. So here's the first of, of four. Degrees of sin are important for maintaining unity and purity in the church and in the family. What do I mean? Um, guys, how many churches have been destroyed because of gossip and slander that people are seeing in the church and they start gossiping among each other about, did you see what so-and-so did? Or why do they do this? Or why don't they do this with their kids? And they're not... How much of that could be avoided if we would apply the proverb that says, the wise overlook an offense. If we had categories, this isn't that serious. I'm going to overlook it. But now we can't overlook all sin because 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church is called arrogant because they're not dealing with unrepentant, ongoing sexual immorality in the church. And they were to do church discipline and remove it. But the point being, there's different categories of sin. And how we view those helps us maintain purity and unity in the church. Guys, how many of our families would be, honestly, just a lot more pleasant if we had some, some type of way to just begin to apply the proverb to overlook an offense? You don't have to bring up every single thing that you think is sinful or wrong and identify it. You don't have to. Wisdom would say, don't do that. Secondly, degrees of sin can help us guard from foolishly moving into deeper sin. Um, many, many counselors will tell you they've heard this over and over again. Uh, someone that may say something like, um, I, I continued to commit lust and so I thought, since lust is adultery in the heart, I thought I might as well just go the whole way. Commit the physical act. Where are they getting that? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Far fewer use that same principle on the other thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. Uh, and you won't hear this confession months or much. Um, I, I was hating this person in my heart, therefore I decided just to kill them. <laughs> same argument, same thing Jesus is saying, but you won't hear that. Um, 
Where are they getting that? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so people have misunderstood what Jesus is saying there. And, and what do they do? I'll give you an example. There was a, a renowned uh, psychiatrist who did not like Jesus. Okay, to put it lightly. He rejected Christ because he said Christ is not an ethical teacher. Because he read Matthew chapter 5 and he said Jesus is not an ethical teacher because he's saying that hatred in the heart is the same as murder and lust in the heart is the same as adultery. You know what? I agree with that atheistic psychiatrist. I agree with him. He's right. If Jesus is saying hatred in the heart is the same as murder and lust is the same as the actual act of adultery, I agree with him. Jesus isn't an ethical teacher. Thankfully, Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying that. Jesus is correcting the Jews who said, I didn't commit Adultery. I didn't murder. Therefore, I have obeyed the law. And Jesus goes, oh really? Have you checked this? Your heart, your motives. Ways that you can break the law at a different level. Hatred. Lust. Right? That's where Jesus is going. He's not equating these things, saying they're all sin is absolutely equal. Third reason why we need to think about degrees of sin is that it helps us understand God's justice. So let's be really clear. God is just. Therefore, all sin will be punished. Either we're punished for our sin or Christ is punished on our behalf. But the penalty for sin is death. Because God is just. That's why we um, we reject the Catholic view of or, or distinction of venial and mortal sins, where they'll try to distinguish between sin in this way. And we reject that with the Protestant reformers who would say, "No, all sin is mortal, because the penalty for sin is death." But just because we're saying that all sin leads to death does not mean uh, that we should believe that all sin is equal. I mean, again, Jesus is the one saying this person committed the greater sin. He's giving us that category. There are 22 references in the New Testament to degrees of rewards. 22 references of rewards that saints will receive in heaven. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said. The idea of gradation of sin and reward is based off God's justice. If I commit twice as many sins as another person, justice demands that the punishment fits the crime. If I've been twice as virtuous as another person, justice demands that I get more, rewar- more of a reward. God tells us that the entrance into heaven will, here it is, only be on the basis of Christ's merit. But, once we get to heaven... Rewards will be dispensed according to works. 
Those who have been abundant in good works will receive an abundant reward, and those who have been neglectful will have a small reward. Why? Because God is just. God is fair. Even the Old Testament law demonstrates that premeditated murder is different from unintentional killing. Genesis 9. We see that. Unintentional sin and intentional sin are both talked about in the Old Testament in Numbers 15, Jeremiah 7. Even our judicial system works like this, doesn't it? Our U.S. judicial system. We make distinctions on intentional and unintentional sin. Involuntary manslaughter, right? We, we make these type distinctions. Why? Well, because it's based off the Hebraic judicial system. God is just. And so the principle is this. Acts of sin done in full knowledge and defiance of God's law are viewed as greater than those that are unintentionally or ignorantly committed. Which leads to this fourth point. Uh, Degrees of sin show that God holds more responsible for sin those with greater knowledge of truth. Those who know more have a greater responsibility. Jesus was very, very, very clear on this point. Matthew 11 Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more, bearable, more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's Jesus showing us that a greater knowledge of God's will gives a greater responsibility to obey it. And therefore a greater accountability when we stand before the Lord one day. Which again, this is what Jesus is saying to Pilate. He who handed me over to you has committed the greater sin. And whether you think handed over, who handed him over? Who's Jesus talking about? Is it Judas? Well, he's a Jew. Or is it the Jewish leaders? They're Jews. doesn't matter which one you pick on that. I'm not really sure myself. And it doesn't really matter because he's talking about the Jews who knew better. And they rejected their Messiah either way. And so, to sum that up, uh, it is a great sin to modify a four-letter profanity word with the name of God, to mock God, to, as these soldiers, crucify the Son of God. But Jesus calls it a greater sin to claim to be God's people and then reject God. It is a greater sin. Now, um, I want to point out something else here that I think the Apostle John wants us to see in verse 4. There's, there's a sadistic, I don't even know what other word to use other than sadistic sounds right, a sadistic irony. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. 
That, that little phrase there, behold the man, is what clued me into, it's esso uh, home, uh, um, in Latin, it is a anthropological statement. It, that's what shows me we're dealing with the doctrine of man. It doesn't say, behold a man, as if Christ were just one among many. It says, behold the man, as if he is, has no competitor, as if he is in a category of his own. Did Pilate mean to say it like that? Yes and no. I think Pilate's actually trying to mock the Jews at this point. And so he brings Jesus out on this balcony. All the Jews are down and he's up in this balcony. And he brings Jesus out, clothed in this purple robe, crown of thorns on his head, already covered in blood, and says, Behold the man. As if to say, this is the man you want me to kill? The one who threatens your religion? The bloodied, beaten, silent, nonviolent, renegade Jew who looks ridiculous, dressed up like this? Behold the man. This is the man that you made me uh, give you Barabbas instead of the murderer, the criminal that I just let free because you want this man to die? Behold the man. Now think of the irony behind all of this. Pilate is unknowingly crowning and robing in purple the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Roman soldiers are shouting, Hail King of the Jews! as they fake bow to Him. And what they mean for mocking, we actually sing songs about 2,000 years later. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. You see the irony? The, the crown of thorns. That was a joke to them. They're doing that to make a joke of Christ. To mock Him. I quoted the author last week that said, twisting together a crown of thorns, they ram the symbol of the curse of Adam down on the head of the second Adam. Thorns and thistles, Adam's curse, wrapped around the second Adam's head. And what hymn do we sing? Crown Him with many crowns. We often think of heavenly crowns, don't we? Maybe we should think of also that crown He wore that was a sign of His humility. That crown of thorns. There's deep irony in their mockery. What they meant for dishonor, God used to honor His Son. What they, what they were using to try to say, look at the worst of humanity. The man. The worst of humanity right here that we're going to put on a Roman cross, because that's the only people that went on Roman crosses, were the worst of humanity. Behold Him. Look at Him. What they were really pointing out and saying, behold the man, was the best of humanity. The second Adam. Humanity in its perfect form. Church, just for a minute, let's think about Christ as the second Adam. As this perfect 
humanity, the best of humanity, what Adam should have been but wasn't. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Then the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. I wanted to do a full sermon on that little phrase. I resisted. We're not going to do it. Um, The self-control of Christ. To not speak in that moment is unbelievable. To not defend himself or clear his name. I mean, we know how difficult this is. To be falsely accused of something and not defend yourself. To be misunderstood or even worse, lied about and not seek to clear your name. We know how much self-control that takes. Not a little bit. It is very natural to want to um, vindicate ourselves when we're wrongly accused. He does not speak. I think about even as a as a church, you know, we're not an old church. We've only been around for 14 years, but year one, we already had a test in this regard. You know, we were doing things, trying to love people and trying to be obedient to the word as much as we understood, and. We had people that left our church slandering the name of our church for how they were treated. It is very hard not to want to defend yourself. I think all of us know in marriage the self-control needed to, be, to remain silent if wrongly accused. How many of you children, have your parents, have wrongly accused you of something? It's very difficult to stay silent. If wrongly accused, employees or bosses or coworkers falsely accuse you or misunderstood you or devalued you. But guys, none of our experiences compare to Christ being sentenced to death on what accusation? He violated God's law. He violated God's law. This is what they, verse 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. That's a tough pill to swallow if you're Christ. Christ came to fulfill the law. Christ knew the law. They didn't know the law. Christ obeyed the law. They didn't obey the law. And what basis Christ said that he's the Son of God, he made himself the Son of God, but... He was the Son of God. So He isn't breaking the law. They are. He isn't deceiving anyone. They are. He isn't lying about His identity. They are. He is the Son of God. And He's silent. The prophet Isaiah predicted 700 years before this as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not His mouth. Any of you ever seen a sheep slaughtered? Not a pretty sight, but it's not loud. They're silent. And Christ is rightly named the Lamb of God that takes away 
the sins of the world. And He is showing His Lamb-likeness in His silence before Pilate. He had already told them who He was. He even said in John 10.24, when they asked Him if He was the Christ, He said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me. He's going, I've told you for 33 years, in word and in deed. And you don't believe Me. And so before Pilate, he doesn't need to defend himself again. His works have testified. His life has testified. His words have testified. And so what Jesus is teaching us is that sometimes silence is needed so that we do not sin. And sometimes speaking is needed so that we do not sin. Let me say that again. Sometimes silence is needed so that we do not sin. And sometimes speaking is needed so that we do not sin. Jesus knew when to speak and when to stay silent. His purity of tongue might be the most impressive thing about His self-control. Because what does James say about the tongue? Nobody can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. But who tamed the tongue? Christ tamed the tongue. Christ had mastery over every word He spoke and knew when not to speak. And Pilate is offended at his silence in verse 10. He says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And I want to end on verse 11 because Christ, He knows He needs to speak at this moment. He's standing looking face to face with a tyrant who, who thinks he has God-like power. And so Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And what amazes me about that is not that Jesus rebuked a tyrant, a tyrannical government leader. That's not what's so impressive about this. It's that He did it with a great measure of grace. How does he speak the truth with grace? Even, even more, how is he not intimidated? Because Pilate not only has authority to kill Jesus, he has God-given authority to kill Jesus. But it doesn't Im intimidate Christ because Pilate's authority over Jesus is subordinate to God's authority over Pilate. Pilate's authority over Jesus is subordinate to God's authority over Pilate. So Jesus is comforted at this moment, not because Pilate is powerless, but because Pilate is guided. Jesus doesn't get His comfort because He knows He's not ultimately in the hands of Pilate. He's ultimately in the hands of His Father. Acts 4.28 will end reading this. It says, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand 
and your plan predestined to take place. What the Father predestined to take place was Christ dying as a sacrifice for our sins. And so Christ could endure all sorts of evil and suffering knowing that was not just Pilate's agenda, His Father's agenda. Church, as we go to the table, um, I don't know how we can't rejoice knowing that He went to the cross. He did the will of His Father. All that that means for us. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have trusted Christ as your Savior, those who have been baptized into His name, come rejoicing. May the, may the Lord find our hearts rejoicing in the work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. Take a few moments and pray. And then we will come down these center aisles and take the elements. You can return to your seat and we'll take the supper together. Father, You are worthy of worship. We thank You for sending Your Son. We thank You, Christ, that even in Your words, You did not sin. In Your heart, You never sinned. In Your actions, You never sinned. You were the spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And we praise You. And Lord, as we come to this table and think about Your body, and Your blood, we remember that they were an acceptable sacrifice because they were perfect, pure, righteous, holy, body and blood. And so Lord, all of our hope is in You. And we recast ourselves upon the finished work of Your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.